that's where we're going to be at most of this morning. So I'm going to encourage you. Um, I don't necessarily stress this a lot of weeks, but I, I have most of the verses up here. But I, I encourage you to go grab a Bible if, um, if you don't have one. There's a bunch of them back there um, if you want one. Um, we're going to be a lot of different places this morning. We're going to kind of camp out in Romans 8, but then we're going to bounce all over the place, but kind of all wrapping around this here in Romans 8. So super encouraging start to this morning. Um, that's sarcastic. But if, I don't know if any of you have kind of sensed this over the last six months, over the last, I'm going to fall over this, sorry Nick. Over the last six months, over the last year, two years maybe, there's just been a lot of heaviness in the world. But it's like worldwide. Uh, seems like there's lots of conflict, lots of tension, lots of disaster. I mean, just kind of thinking about some things. There's, I mean, even the U.S. specifically, we've seen like the world, like the country almost like divided over this last presidential election. And we've really seen that not get any better. There's this back and forth racial tension that we've seen in our country that is like so, so present. There's this, this tension like worldwide with, with North Korea and all the, the stuff that's going on with that. I mean, just recently we've seen disaster after disaster after disaster of hurricane after hurricane. We've seen the biggest earthquake in over 100 years in Mexico. There's flooding that's affecting millions in Asia. There's wildfires going crazy on the West Coast. And with all of these things that, that are going on, it, it can sometimes be very heavy. Yeah, I, I don't know if you feel this or not, but it's like not as heavy for our minds, but also kind of heavy for the heart as we think about those that are affected um, and maybe even being personally affected ourselves in some way. I mean, Christian or non-Christian, you, you kind of feel this like worldwide. Um, but I think that there's another element at play for Christians because it can often feel like, man, the, the world's just getting worse. The world, like it's going downhill where it's this losing battle that, that we're in. And we can kind of sense that we're losing, or even that ultimately that God is losing because everything is getting worse and everything's not getting better and better and better. But I hope that we'll see that like, that was, that's not the promise of Scripture, that, 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 that everything is going to continue to get better and better and better, and then Jesus comes. Like, that's not at all the promise that we see. But I think that we as the church, for us to best engage the world, for us to best be a part of the world, we talked about that quite a bit over the last couple of weeks about like being a part, being sent into the world. I think that we're going to have to be able to kind of look past today, look past tomorrow, and kind of look at all of this with this eternal mindset of not just worrying about the sufferings that we see today or the sufferings we're going to see tomorrow or the next week or next year, but we're going to look at this, I hope, in a very, with an eternal mindset because that is what we have been called to do, like the, the trust that in disasters that God, we saw a couple weeks ago, I saw that God is going to make all things new. We have that promise. In salvation, we have a promise that God is going to complete what he started. And we're going to see both of these things. So I'm going to do it a little bit different. Um, a lot of times I've been reading an entire passage and then kind of go back and then walk through it. But what I'm going to do is just kind of go verse by verse. We're not going to read the whole passage beforehand. But we're going to go verse by verse through Romans 8, um, 18 through 30 specifically. So starting in verse 18, 
Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. It doesn't say specifically what he's referring to. I mean, Paul could technically, I mean, he could be referring to a lot of suffering that he endured. We mentioned some of that last week. I mean, he was beat numerous times. He was shipwrecked, bitten by a snake, cast out of cities. All these things happened all the time. But I don't think that what Paul is doing is referencing a current, like, specific situation in terms of his suffering. I think based on what we're going to see in the rest of these verses, he's kind of talking about just the sufferings of being a part of the world, of being part of a broken world, a sinful world that is so drastically affected by sin. The sufferings of the present time being a part of the broken world. So before we talk too much about the broken world, what I want to do is kind of set something out in front of us that I, we, I read this passage back, I guess it was five or six weeks ago now, in the very first sermon we did, I did on the theology of work. But Revelation 21, if you want to flip there, you can. It will be on the screen. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Because here we're going to see this picture of a new heaven and new earth, of God ultimately redeeming creation, bringing about this new heaven and new earth. But as you read this, I want you to think about this as we see it now. I mean, the world that we see, the brokenness, the pain, the hurt that we see in the world, the disaster, all of it. Go ahead and I'm going to read this. I guess I better flip there. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. This is John speaking of this vision. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Next time we read this passage, Nick's just going to sing it. Um, because apparently there's a song that he knows very well that, that says these verses um, pretty much word for word. But do you, do you feel the difference of these verses to what we see right now? It's, it's very, very, very different. No pain, no crying, no mourning. Death is no more. Like, there is a time coming for the Christian when we see all of this. Like this, this grand climax of God's plan here. But that's not what we see now. Not at all. Like, that's not what you see when you turn on the news. That's not what you see when you, when you scroll through Facebook or whatever social media outlet you see. Like, it's this already but not yet kind of scenario. Like, we already... We, Already we have this hope. Like There's a promise that this is true. These words are trustworthy and true. But the not yet of that is we're still in a broken world. We're still in 
here seeing all of the brokenness, the pain, the disasters, the suffering. But none of this is worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Like this is what I want to look at this morning. Like while we can so, so quickly get caught up in Man, the heaviness of disaster, the heaviness of pain and suffering and all of these things. We have a hope that God is going to bring it all to completion. I don't often advertise what the sermon title is or we don't have little outlines to follow with the sermon title on top. But if I could title this, it would be What God Begins, He Finishes. What God Begins, He Finishes. Like this is true of creation, And this is true of salvation. Let's continue reading. Um, I'm just going to read 19 through 22 now. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So back a couple weeks ago, I mean five, six weeks ago by now, we looked at Genesis 1 and 2 and saw that out of nothing that God created everything that is. That with the mere power of his word, he created. And that he created, it was good. There was, no, there was no sin. There was no brokenness. But it was just this perfect harmony, this perfection that he had created. Man, woman, nature, all of it created perfectly. But then we saw that through man's disobedience in Genesis 3, that, that man, because of their disobedience, their rejection of God, sin enters the world. Everything. Man, woman, Satan, all of creation was now cursed because of this sin. We saw that woman was cursed with painful childbirth and there was always going to be this this desire to rule over her husband in a way that God had not designed it. We see man, he was cursed in his work, that, that, that through toil and labor he was going to have to work the land. So I'm going to read Genesis 3, 17 through 19. This is specifically as God is talking to man. He said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I think we're very quick to see the way that that sin has affected man. I mean, it's, it's impossible to miss this, the way that we're so enslaved to sin. But I think often we, we, we don't see the way that sin is, has often so drastically affected creation because it has, has cursed creation as well. Because not only do you see that now there's this, re, there's this relationship conflict between man and woman in Genesis 3, but now there's also a conflict between mankind and creation. That man is still given dominion over creation, but now you see, like, from right here in Genesis 3, that creation is now rebelling against man. Like, he says that, that thorns and thistles are going to be going against the work of Adam. That, that through toil and labor, through farming, trying to provide, thorns and thistles are going to be rebelling against him. What, what might this look like 
no, I mean, could creation rebelling against or nature, like the nature of creation, all of that rebelling against man, what could that look like now? I mean, could it look like a landslide that kills 100 people about a month ago in Nepal? Like, could it look like earthquake that has killed at least 200 people in Mexico? Could it look like floods and, and hurricanes that have, that have flooded and, and, and basically, like, stalled entire cities because of the damage that is done? Nature, all of creation is affected by this sin. It's all broken. It's all messed up. It's all longing to be remade. Look at verse 22 for a second. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Going to be real honest. I don't know a whole lot about childbirth. I don't, and that's okay. But like, for those of you that have given birth, you're going to maybe be able to resonate with this a little bit differently, maybe more deeply. But all I feel comfortable saying is that from everything I hear, Physical childbirth is not a pleasant physical experience. That, I feel okay saying that. I mean, that's the curse of Genesis 3, that childbirth is going to be painful. But the end of childbirth is joy, right? Like That pain leads to the joy of new life. It leads to this, this, this new creation, this just child that is, there's reason for joy. And like this is the picture that... Paul is giving with, with how creation, like the, the state that it's in right now, it's broken. It's, it's in pain. It's longing for the future glory. It's longing to be made new. It's longing to be as God had originally created it. When there is no brokenness, when there is no pain, when there is no suffering, like that is, that is, that's creation as well. And it's easy to think at this time, okay, so, so creation is broken, so creation is affected by sin and all of this. But even in the brokenness, even in the rebellion against man, even in all of this, like God is still sovereign over it. Like it's not that, that God has made it and then it's broken and he just steps back and watches it all happen. That's, that's not at all what we see. It, so... Why hurricanes happen and how is God good and all this. Like that's a bigger thing than I have time to go into in depth this morning. That is a huge thing. And I'm not, I don't want to skip past it, but I also don't want to get down to it or we'll be there for the next three weeks. But like that, that might be a really good CG conversation. But God holds the power over the storm. God, we see this. I mean, last Sunday we read through Hebrews um, 1 and 2 on Sunday nights. And he, of Jesus, here's what it says. It says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not just, it already says that, that all things were created through him and by him. But now, like, not only did he just create, but he upholds, like an active upholding. It's all under his control. If you remember way back to Matthew 8, which was forever ago, when we preach through this, but we see Jesus calling the storm. It's verse 26. It'll be up there. He rose, speaking of Jesus, and rebuked the winds and the seas, and there was great calm. Jesus has the power to do this. Like, it's all within his control. 
I mean, that's why we can be confident in our prayer. Because if God is not sovereign over that, there's no reason for us to pray. There's no reason for us to cry out to God and say, calm a storm if he doesn't have the power to do it. Because why? Like we pray, so solely our prayers are acknowledging that God is sovereign, that God is powerful, that God can do it. We'll come back to this thought in a, in a minute. But creation is longing to be remade. Longing for the day when God will make it new. But we find ourselves, the Christians, we find ourselves in the same state. We find ourselves in the same posture, or we should. Like, look at verse 23. Continue in Romans 8. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says it's not just creation that should be longing for this, that this, this new heavens and new earth. But it's us as well as we, as we long for this once and, and for all redemption. Like if we're not longing for this, I think that our view of who God is and, our, and the view of our sin is too small. Because if we're not longing for this, I think our view of God is too small. Because we should be just longing for him to fix this, to fix the brokenness, to fix the sin that is so rampant in our lives, in our world. But again, we find ourselves in this kind of already but not yet stage. Like we already, because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, like we have the hope that this is all going to happen, that we are going to be saved, that we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the King. Like we have this hope that's already, like Jesus has already done this. Like I read verse um, 3 in Hebrews 1, but I didn't finish the verse. Like after it says that he upholds the, the, the universe with the power of his word, Here's what the rest of it says. It says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Like this picture of completion, he's already done it. It's done. There's no more work to be, to be done there. But the not yet part of salvation is what is so often evident. Like It's like, God, we have this hope. You've already done it but we're still here. We're still in this world of brokenness. There's still, we still have pain. The sin is still in our lives. Like, like all of this is still very present. So what's he talking about? We wait for this adoption. Because haven't we already been adopted? So what I want to do, I was trying to think of a good example of this this week, and it's been a long time just trying to figure out how to best explain this. And... So I'm going to give you an example. It's an imperfect example, but I really want you to try to hang with me a little bit. Like, imagine a five-year-old boy or girl. We'll say boy for this, this example. Living in an orphanage in another country. I mean, think of, think of the stories you hear about orphanages who are overcrowded, lack of resources, just the awful picture of orphanages that, that, you, that you hear about. Um... Picture this five-year-old boy there, never having known a family, never having known a father or a mother or any type of family. This is all he's known is this 
broken orphanage that's just messy and dirty. That's all he's known. One day, uh, a family walks in to meet him and to greet him. Unknown to the boy, they've already, they've already finalized the whole adoption. They, the boy doesn't know it, but the legal price has been paid. The adoption has been finalized. All of it has been accomplished. All of it's done. They go in to meet this boy. They introduce him as like their son. Like this is the very first time this boy has ever had a father. It's the first time he's ever had a family. Not, and it's not because he deserved it. It's not because he asked for it. It's solely because the love of a father said, you are my son. I am adopting you into my family, not because of what you've done, but because I'm choosing to love you unconditionally. You are now a part of my family. That's, that's a picture of adoption. So, so this boy has a family. It's already been, the, the price has been paid. And here's where it becomes a little bit more imperfect, the example at least. But the father says, okay, I'm going to go. You're, you're, you're part of my family. You are my son, but you're not coming with me right now. I'm going to go back. I'm going to come back soon, and I'm going to bring you actually physically with my family to, to be a part of my house. But you just, just wait. Hold on. You are my family. You are my son. I've adopted you. I've chosen to love you unconditionally. The boy's not going to understand the timing. Wait, why? Why am I still a part of this broken orphanage? Why am I still around the messy and the ugly and the pain? The boy's not going to understand this. He's not going to understand the timing. But what he does know at this point is that he is loved and that he has a father. For the first time, he has a father. He's been adopted. He's a part of a family. There's nothing else that has to be done to complete the legal side of the adoption. It's already been completed. Can you sense that five-year-old boy longing for his father to return? Like longing. Not just wanting, not just hoping even, but longing. Like longing for every moment of every day for his father to return. Like this is the picture that we should find ourselves in. Like the legal... The legal part of our adoption has been paid. It's been finalized. Jesus' blood bought that. We've, if you are in Christ, you've been saved. The price has been paid. There's nothing else that has to be done to make you a part of God's family. Are we longing for that? We've already, already been justified. We've already been adopted. But longing for that future adoption. I think that is what Paul is talking about here. That's where we have to find ourselves. But, but look, look at 24 and 25, the verses right after this. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience, not understanding everything that's going on, not understanding why the world is still so broken, not understanding like the timing of everything. We know that we're loved. We know that we're part of a family. We know that we have a father who has chosen to set his affections and his love on us, but we don't understand the timing of it. But who hopes for what he sees? 
Like we live in the midst of a broken world, but who hopes for what he sees? We hope for a promise that we have in Scripture that God is going to make it all, make all things new. Like this future hope that we have. Like this is all through Scripture. This picture of adoption. Romans eight fifteen, right before the passage we started, says, "We have received the Spirit of adoption as sons." Like, we've been made a part of the family. Through Jesus, through what he did, we've been made a part of the family. But in the meantime, we live in this broken world. We still, we're, still, we're still here. Like, like what, is, what is this? Like, what do we do? What do we do in the meantime? Let's continue. Verse 26 through 28. Likewise. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Have you ever felt like you just didn't know what to pray? Like you know it was outside, it was beyond your control. You knew God was going to have to do something, but you didn't know what. Like Brent and I, we have felt ourselves there a lot recently. I mean, just... With the situation with, with the girls, um, like honestly, a lot of it just comes down to God. I don't know what to pray. Like, I, God, we, we pray that you would do a miracle in the life of their mother, that you would so like get a hold of her heart and give her desires for, for you. You change her heart. Through that, she would desire to love and provide for her children. But then we pray like, God, but if, if they're better taken care of, if, if your plan has them with us, then just make that happen. Like We want to care for them and provide for them now. But God, I don't know what your will is. I don't know what is best. Only you know. Like, I, I thought of this verse so much recently. Like, it comes down to, like, God, if you want them with their mom, your will be done. If you want them with us, your will be done. Like, we just don't even know how to pray. I find myself thinking a lot that I know what, I know what God's will is. I know what is supposed to happen, but I don't. Like, I've got no idea, but God does. And the Spirit intercedes for us, for when we do not know how to pray as we ought, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Like Paul's specifically talking about sufferings. He says, the very first verse we read this week, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. Like it's not that I first when I first read this, I thought, okay, is he saying that we never know how to pray? We never pray as we ought to. I don't think that's what he's talking about because the Bible's clear on some things like we should always be praying for holiness. We should be praying to be made more like Jesus. We should pray for the fruits of the Spirit. There's many things the Bible says, pray for this, pray without ceasing. But there are times when we really don't know how to pray. I mean, imagine yourself right now as a, as, as a Christian, a follower of Jesus living in Puerto Rico. Your, your village, your, your town, your home, everything you've known has been totally wiped away. It's in shambles after a hurricane. 
Like, you've not had running water, you've not had electricity for 10, 11 days now. Like, everything has been totally wrecked. Like, what do you pray for? Like, the sufferings of this present age, what do you pray for? Like, God, do something. God, like, do you know? Like, what do we even pray for? But even in that moment, we have the hope that even when we don't know how to pray, that the Spirit is interceding for the saints according to the will of God. Like, this is the, the assurance that we have. Like, Tanner says this often. It's always a good thing. It's always safe to pray for the will of God. Like, that's always a safe prayer. Like, that is exactly what's going to happen. God, His will is going to be done. This is how Matthew, or in Matthew, this is how Jesus taught His disciples how to pray. In teaching them, he said, pray like this. And he gives them a lot of examples. And he says, pray, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like this is the promise that we have, even when we don't know how to pray. The Spirit intercedes on behalf of the will of God. So verse 28. Here we see a beautiful promise of Scripture. A promise that is very often taken out of context, but it's a very beautiful promise. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Listen, there's so much more that I could dig into here. There's so much more that I could go into that I'm not going to just, I don't have time. We don't have time to really dig into like this verse specifically. We can spend a couple weeks on it as well. But I want to spend just, just a moment. Because this, again, I said, is one of the most misquoted promises of God in all of Scripture. Like, we often say, what does this good mean? Like, God working it together for good. And we define this with our own definition of good. I think that was one of mine. What, what is this worldly definition of good? What, how do we define that? Like, does it, we decide, like, the world and, and many false teachings within Christianity would say, this means that we're going to be happy. God working together for good means you're going to be happy. It means you're going to be healthy. It means you're always going to have a good job. It means you're always going to get the things you want and that you're going to be prosperous in what you do. Like, that's kind of the promise that the world says. That's the promise that... False teachings within Christianity would say, like, this is not the promise in Romans 8.28. Not at all. Like, we can't define this word good in our own minds. Like, this is not our definition. Like, God's definition of good involves us sharing in His glory for all of eternity. Like, that is the promise for good that all things are working towards. It's us learning to enjoy Jesus and Jesus alone forever. That is good. That is the good that all things are working towards. Like, the promise if we lose a job, the, God's promise to working all, thing, all things together for good is not that we're going to have an, another good job or another good paying job. Like, that might not happen ever again. And that's okay. God is going to do something to teach us how to supremely enjoy Jesus and Jesus alone. Like, it's, pro it's not a promise of good for this world in this situation. 
Again, it's that eternal mindset. It's that God is working things together for good, so I am going to enjoy Jesus forever and ever and ever. So, so again, what is the promise? What, what, is, what makes this promise so good? Like, he's working all things for good. Nothing ever that touches your life is outside of the control and design of God. Like God is sovereign over it all. There's nothing outside of the control of God. I'm not saying this, this promise always makes sense to us. Absolutely not. I think there's so many things as a part of this world that we don't understand, that we still try to, to get our minds around our, our version of good. Like that's not this promise again. Hurricanes don't make sense often. Earthquakes don't make sense. Disease doesn't always make sense to us. In every moment, everything that we encounter, there's nothing outside of the control of God. Because He's working it all together for good. That does not mean this earth. It doesn't mean that there won't be parts of that when we're enjoying the blessings of God. It's not saying none of that's going to be true, that we're never going to be happy, we're never going to have a good job, we're never going to um, be healthy or wealthy. It's not saying that that's absolutely not the case, but that God is working it together for good as we enjoy Jesus forever. That wasn't planned. That was all working together. Um, so let's, let's go ahead and move on. I'm not, I'm not very good at impromptu. Uh, we're just going to bear with me. Skip on to the last two verses, 29 and 30. Like these two verses are two of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Again, the title for this morning. God finishes what he begins. Like, what God perfectly created... In Genesis 1 and 2, he brings to completion. Revelation 21, we have a promise that he is bringing that to completion. We saw that already but not yet feeling of us. Like we've been adopted as sons and daughters. The adoption has been complete. But we still have this his longing. But verse 29 and 30 right here, again we see this promise. This promise that God is bringing to completion his work of salvation. Like there is so much hope in these verses right here. And I know for many of you, like you hear the words for new, predestined. And it, it's a place of tension for, for, for many people. I pray that we, we as a church, that we can, that we can get past attention because there is a beautiful hope in these verses right here. Don't miss this. It starts out, for those God foreknew. Often we can, 
read this as kind of that God was made aware of, that God was aware of these things. But when it talks about knowing, God intimately knowing people, we're talking about people, those whom he foreknew. We're talking about people. God knowing people in the Bible is not being aware of people. It's knowing people, intimately knowing people. Don't flip there. There's not enough time. But Jeremiah 1.5. This is God speaking directly to Jeremiah. He says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. I know you. Not I'm aware of your presence. It's I created you. I formed you. I knew you. I know you. Look at Amos 3, 2. This is God speaking to Israel. God speaking to Israel through Amos. He says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Like, God is aware of all the families. God knows all the families. He is God of Israel. He says, I have known you. I chose you. We saw this in, I mean, starting with Abraham. I chose you as, to be your God. Chose you as my people. What about in the New Testament, this word? Speaking of Jesus, in, in 1 Peter 1.20, Peter writes, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Like, this was always exactly as God has planned it. We see through Acts, he says, that Jesus was offered up to be crucified according to the plan of God. That has always been the plan. Like Jesus was not, God was not just aware that Jesus was going to do this. It was always the plan of God. He chose that. He said, this is going to be how I work. This is what I am doing. That Jesus is going to be a sacrifice for the sins of man. Like this he foreknew has to start with God. But look at this progression. Look at this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Also those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Am I getting it out of order? He called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. You see this? Like those same, those he foreknew, he glorified. There is none lost in that progression. It's the same those, those people. It begins and ends with God. Like we could go through each of these terms and say, oh, what does foreknew mean? What does predestined mean? What does called mean? What does justified mean? What does glorified mean? We're not going to do that. But, but look at what this means. Like, God doesn't say, I'm going to predestine you and then leave it up to you to find me. He doesn't say, I'm going to call you, but then you're on your own to find Jesus. He doesn't say, I'm going to justify you and then let you complete everything else with your works. Like That's not the promise of God. God is saying, I am bringing it to completion. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called, he justifies, he glorifies. Like, there's none lost in this progression. Like, this is like the assurance of salvation that we have. 
that God starts it, God completes it. He's, he started creation. He's, he's bringing it new. He's making it new. He's bringing it to completion. That's the picture of adoption that we see. Adoption, it comes from the adopter. It's him setting his affections on the child. It's God setting his affections, choosing to love us. It doesn't matter everything else that's going on in the world. We have God who has decided that he was in Jesus from the foundation of the world to purchase his people with his blood. It doesn't matter everything else that's going on. The whole world is falling to pieces. It doesn't matter because we have Jesus. I didn't know if I was going to read the rest of eight, but I have to. 31, I think it's up there. Okay. Pick up in verse 31. We're going to finish chapter 8 here because this passage is often read by itself. But if you read this in the context of all of chapter 8, it, it's amazing. 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is inter indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, no worldly circumstance, no disaster, no anything can separate us because the love is not from us. What does this say? It can separate us from the love of God that was shown in Jesus. There is nothing that can break that because his love is unconditional. It's all God loving us, him adopting us, him bringing that to Completion. How, how can this not be overwhelming? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. How does this not cause us to long for him, to long to have more of him, to long to see him make all things new? It doesn't matter. There, the, the world is full of sin, it's full of brokenness, it's full of hurricanes, it's full of disasters, it's full of pain, it's full of sufferings. None of that is worth comparing to the hope that we have in Jesus. Nothing can separate that. Like, we can rejoice because we serve a God who brings what he starts to completion. He doesn't leave it and say, you do the rest. He starts creation. He brings it to completion. We rejoice because of this. 
We cry out to God knowing that He is the one in control of the storms. We cry out to Him knowing that nothing can separate us from the love through Jesus. Let's pray.